The following interview contains subject matter related to alcohol addiction and sexual assault. Topics some may find to be uncomfortable. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome, everyone, to another edition of the Not-So-Humble Bragcast right here on CKCC Radio. My name is Chris O'Mealy. As always, I will be your host for the next 90 minutes to two hours, depending on how much my guest likes to speak. The feedback has been phenomenal, and I want you guys to keep that going. We're going to jump right in here. I've got a really, really special guest with me this week. He is a published author, and we're going to get real with this week's conversation Please welcome to the Not-So-Humble Bradcast, my guest, the real deal, Kyle Slaymaker. All right. Thanks for having me. This has been a long time coming. It really has been. I'm very, very excited about this. I'm looking forward to talking to you. We have the uh, the wonderful connection through the realm of professional wrestling. Oh, yeah. That's how we, uh, how we met, actually. I've already had a published author on before. So tell us a little oh, I- bit about So You Think You Can Sell. Yeah. So, um... I I started my own business uh, about four or five years ago now, and I, I did all my own marketing, all my own branding. It's a sales training company where I come in, I teach people how to sell better. I help rework entire sales process for larger companies. I was trying to figure out how I could, you know, boost the brand, right? Boost more credibility to labeling me as an authority in the space. And I realized that the best way to do that would have been through a book. So I came up with this huge book. Coincidentally, that's still in, in the works. It's been in the works for about the same time as the company. Um, and I realized that instead of just releasing the, the big book altogether, I could break it up into chunks and release it that way to where each book can be digested in you know 30 minutes to an hour. And it gives people immediate return as soon as they go out and they implement what they read in the book. I published the book, I put it on Amazon. And about five or six hours later, um, a friend of mine texted me and he's like, Hey, are you looking at Amazon? And I said, no, I don't need to buy anything. What's the point of looking at Amazon? He's like, go check out your book. And I looked and it said number one bestseller. And I was like, Oh wow. And I looked at it and it was getting ordered like all over the world. And like, now I think it's up to like 20 some different countries now. Um, and it opened a lot of really cool big doors for me. So how does one get a book published on Amazon? Oh, you're asking me the, the tricks of the trade. Uh, it's, it's ridiculously easy. Basically, all you do is you download the uh, KDP, the Kindle publishing app, and you can do everything from your computer. Everything from cover design to editing to formatting, and then you can put it on Amazon. Now, the, the trick is when you, if you're looking for those bestseller badges or number one new release badges, it's all algorithm-based. So you have to really do a good job of promoting it yourself. So a whole bunch of people buy at one time, and then you get that button or that badge. Well, I'm pretty good at self-promotion, as I'm sure you've realized by this point. Oh, yeah. So, and that all comes with the wrestling background and everything, too, but also the podcasting background. So why sales? What's your background? I, I worked a lot of jobs after the military hated every one of them. Uh, the worst job I ever had was working armed security at a nuclear power plant. Oh, wow. Yeah. Carrying around guns and gear, 70 pounds of it for 12 hours a shift. And it was, it was horrible. Uh, and the girl I was dating who turned into my wife, who turned into my ex-wife, um, we were driving down Mannheim Pike and she saw a sign at the one dealership and she pulled in 
And she's like, that's it. I can't do this anymore. And I'm like, oh, my God. She's dumping me along the side of the road. Like, like what a way, right? And she says, you need to go in and you need to apply. I don't care what the position is. Just go in and apply. So I walk in. I'm in jeans and a T-shirt. I'm like, there's no way they're going to hire me. I don't even know what the position is. I, I'm not a car connoisseur. And they're interviewing me. And he says, you, you know, this is a sales position. Do you know about cars? I said, no. He said, you know about sales? I said, no. And we're talking and talking. He says, all right, when can you start? <laughs> and, and my eyes got real wide. And I said, this is your bad decision, not mine. I'll start tomorrow, man. I said, you really want to do this? I'll, I'll do it. So he hires me. He says, I think I'm making the right, the right decision here. And I was like, all right, if you say so. So I, I quit my job. I was happy to burn that bridge. I was ecstatic to burn that bridge. <laughs> I got my sales license. And then... I sold my first car and it was a huge deal. Full, full price, fully loaded, top of the line. Just, I made a good commission on that, just on that car alone. Uh, and I walk into my manager's office who hired me and he goes, and that is exactly why I knew I was making the right choice. And from then on, I was hooked and I just upped my skills. I took as many training courses as I could, read as many books as I could sold everything from cars to water softeners to telecom to what I'm doing now. So you kind of found this new skill set almost out of the blue, really. That, that's a good question. I, If you ask a lot of people that knew me before I got into sales, they'd tell you that they've told me many times, like, oh, you should be in sales. You'd be so good at sales. You'd be so good at sales. And I never went into it for, I mean, to this day, I still don't know why I did it. But yeah, it was, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. So you sold cars, you sold, you said water softeners. Yeah, that was a blast. What's the, uh, what's the oddest thing you ever sold? I mean, really, I think it would come down to those water softeners. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, people yeah, don't want hard water, so. They, they don't, but it's such, it was such a weird, I don't know. I, I mean, the, the place was, it was a great place to work. It's just, I, I had a lot that, that went on personally around that time. I almost died and. They put me on all sorts of medicine, so it jacked me up for a little bit. Oh, gotcha. So you've got these great skills in sales, and you decided to write a book to help other people out. So I love that mindset that you want to give these skills back, give this knowledge back to people. A lot of people don't have that mindset. I'm sure you know, working in that kind of industry, there's a lot of people, they try to gatekeep their secrets. Yeah. So, you know, that's... Man, I'm, I'm going to drop some like entrepreneurial knowledge. Here. Ah, go for it. In sales, there's a very big, almost misperception, and, and I know I had that misperception too, where I thought that I, it was like me against the world. I thought that no matter what I had to do, I had to beat the next rep. I had to be the best of the team. And yeah, in essence, that's okay, right? Every salesperson should be striving to be the best in a team because that's when you're going to make the most money, right? But I found out that once I got into sales, especially in car sales, I learned so much from everybody and everybody was willing to help me. If I was having trouble closing a deal, another rep would come over and close it for me. And then he'd say, this is why you didn't close it. This is how I closed it. Right. And that was a big moment for me. And then when I opened my business, I went really hard into the, I need to be as cutthroat as I can and I need to crush my competition. I think just about every entrepreneur does that right? At least when they first start out, like I was such a snobby loser that I took a billboard out 
right outside of my competition's office, <laughs> like right outside. And that, that competition and I, we were finalists for that year's um, reader rankings for the Central Pennsylvania Business Journal. I won the award. He didn't. And I put the billboard out with the uh, you know Central Penn Business Journal best executive coach or whatever the, the award was right outside of his office. You know, looking back, I, I love the guy. We've never had a crossword. We've never had any like negative interactions or any real competition. We send people back and forth to each other. But the biggest aha moment for me, Chris, was there was another guy and he has oh, totally fine if I mention him by name, um, Dave Romeo. Dave was the big dog in the yard in central Pennsylvania for, for business coaching and sales coaching. Dave has, pre, has since retired this year. He was known for everywhere he'd go, every networking event, he'd either be in a real nice suit or he'd be in a Hawaiian shirt. For some reason, I just fixated on Dave and it was like, okay, he's the best. That's who I have to beat. That's who I have to take down. And I made it my mission to do it. I was like, I'm going to take this guy down. I, I, I almost like tricked myself into hating the guy. Uh, and then Dave and I were at a networking event one night. And I was telling a story about the greatest sale I ever made. It's a very well-known story of mine. And Dave was in the circle listening to the story. And he came up to me afterwards. And he's like, hey, that's an incredible story. I'm having a seminar. There's going to be about 200 people there. Why don't you come to my seminar and tell it? And I was like, yeah, sure. And I walked off and I'm like, wait a minute. I thought this guy would be like my competition. Here he's giving me a platform in front of his own customers. And that's kind of when it clicked for me that being cutthroat in business, especially when you're first starting out, is pointless, right? It's it's all about collaboration and not competition. And, and I think that's the Dave's one of my best friends. Yeah, and I think that's the biggest takeaway too. And I feel like a lot of people have that misconception because the very first time I ever worked a sales position, that was my understanding too. Was I was in direct competition with everybody around me, and I had to do this, and I had to close the deal, and it had to be my sale. And if it wasn't mine, I was going to look bad. And then that was kind of a wake-up moment for me, too, when I realized, no, we're all in this together. If I make a sale, everybody benefits. And if I can help somebody else out, the whole company benefits, the team benefits. Exactly. And so that, that's a really good point there. So your, your greatest sales story ever told, is it a story you could tell on here? Yeah. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, it's actually – so I, I, I always give a background of the story, or maybe it's like a prologue, I don't know, or epilogue. <laughs> Um, so you, you mentioned my first book. So you think you can sell if you read that book, this story's in there. At least I think it is. I don't even remember what's in the book. It was written so long ago. <laughs> the cool thing about this story is back when I was married, I was at CVS. This is shortly after the book came out. Uh, I was at CVS picking up some prescriptions and my phone rang and it was a, a West Virginia number and I wasn't going to answer it because I didn't recognize it and it was out of state. But I I've had lunch like an hour before that. And I told my client, I don't care if you don't recognize a number, you answer the call. You're a business owner. You don't run the risk of turning opportunity away. So I answered the call and I said, hello, Kyle speaking. And it's this thick Austrian accent. I can barely understand them. And I'm going to save you the attempt at, at me repeating the accent. Especially <laughs> if it's um, he said, Kyle, this is uh, Gerhard Schwantner of Selling Power. And, and I was like, yeah, right. Right. Selling Power is the industry leading magazine, has been for 40 years. Gerhard's the guy who founded it. He is considered one of the best salespeople of all time. And I, I said, okay, okay. I was like, yeah. And he goes, no, 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 this is, this is really me. And I said, okay. And he said, look, 
somebody gave me your book and I read it and it's incredible. He said, I want you in the magazine. He said, I want to, and not only that, I want to interview you live. Are you interested in that? And I said, yeah, of course. So it just goes to show that, you know, my quick tool for branding that I didn't think would go anywhere led me to one of the biggest moments of my career. So the story happened to the car dealership, right? Now, leading up to this point, I was still in that mentality of, I had commission breath. I was going to get a deal no matter what. It didn't matter. Customers are just paychecks, right? And it all changed this night. We were sitting down in the dealership and somebody walked through the door and it was this this little old lady with a cane and behind her was like a couple in their, I'd say mid sixties. And she comes and she sits down and I'm talking to her and I'm asking her the prerequisite questions. What are you looking for in a car? Do you like leather? Do you like cloth? All the just cliche crap that's standard. And every time I ask her a question, her voice gets softer and softer and she sounds sadder and sadder. I finally said, I said, ma'am, I don't mean to to be too forward. I said, but it doesn't seem like you're really excited about buying a new car. Can I ask what's going on? And she said, well, my husband passed away in a car accident two weeks ago. Uh, We were married for 50 years and he totaled our only car and the the funeral's tomorrow or or something. And she just starts bawling her, the people behind her was her daughter and her son-in-law. They start crying. I'm like, Whoa, wait a minute. Like they didn't teach me this. How am I supposed to handle this crap? Right. Um, but just human decency kicked in and I said, okay, give me a second. We we picked, I, I figured out what car she wanted and I walked back into my sales manager's office and I said, I need you to blow this car out. And he goes, what? And I said, blow it out. I said, I, you can fire me if you want, but, just, we got to give this, this woman at cost. And he's like, all right, I trust you. So he blew the car out for those of you that are listening that aren't in the car business or haven't been in, uh, blowing a car out means you sell it at cost. You don't make a penny. So I walk back out, I have the deal sheet face down and I said, ma'am, listen, before I turn this car over, I just want to tell you that I desperately wish that you were coming to me and buying a car under any other circumstance. I said, I am so sorry that of what your family is going through. And I said, I don't think you can handle going back and forth through the negotiation or anything. And I said, so I went back to my manager. I flipped over the deal sheet and I said, we're going to sell this to you at cost. And she just starts bawling and then they start crying again. So she's very thankful and she gets up, signs paperwork and walks out. Uh, I walk back in the dealership and I hear the door open behind me and it's the, the old lady's daughter. And she says, excuse me, Kyle. And I said, oh, did you guys forget something? And she goes, no, I have never seen anybody ever treat my mother the way you just did. She said, I can't even begin to tell you how much it's appreciated. I would like the exact same car fully loaded. I am going to pay cash. I want you to put all the extras on. I don't want any discounts. And I said, ma'am, you don't have to do that. That's not why I did that for your mom. I did that because it was the right thing to do. And she goes, no, I want it. Now, I'm still a salesperson. You don't have to tell me you want something twice. You're buying, right? <laughs> right, right. So it, it it really hit me hard. And, I, and at that point, my entire sales career went on a whole different path and trajectory because I realized that every single person, no matter what the purchase is, no matter what the, the surface level reasoning is, they buy for an emotional reason. And as long as you can tap into that emotion and you can be a decent person, you're going to make money. And you know they're going to be talking about you for the rest of their lives. Hell yeah. I, I have I have people to this day, Chris, that 
I sold cars to that still talk to me, that still follow me, that bought for me in almost every other company I was at. And I, I sold cars now probably 10 years ago. And that's just it. That's part of the that's part of the game, though, is the the customer client relationship and just relating to someone on a human level. And, you know, you you made a sacrifice for the for her, for the company. But look at what you did right in return. You sold another car with everything included. Yeah. And that never yeah, would have happened if you didn't do that at cost. Yeah. When I when I, I had a mission, when I set out with with the Slaymaker method, I, I wanted to to shake the sales stigma, right? We, we've all done it. Even salespeople do it. Yeah. We see salespeople are like, Oh, you horrible people, just slimy. <laughs> right. Right. And you're like, and even though you're like, I'm, I'm one of them. Right. So I, I always had this saying called shake the stigma. And it's so important. The best way to shake the stigma is to just do the right thing. Right. Just don't rake somebody over the coals. I don't upsell. I don't oversell. I refuse. I'm going to give, I'm going to come out and I'm going to give you exactly what you need the first time. I'm not going to give you what you need and then a million different things you're not going to ever use. No, because I want you coming back to me. I want you telling your friends, hey, go see Kyle at blah, blah, blah. He's going to actually take care of you. And that's another thing. I've worked with those people before too, where they're so hard on the sale that they end up losing it because they're put, they are pushing too hard. They are pushing for too much extra. Oh, yeah. It, uh, here's, here's a good story, right? And this is a story that I very rarely tell. And I actually, Chris, I don't think I've ever told it on the air. Oh, right? well, been, I'm honored. Been probably 70 episodes of my own podcast. I've been on countless other podcasts. I don't think I've ever told this story. So you brought up the perfect segue into it. I was selling for a very big telecommunications company. I can neither confirm nor deny that this company rhymes with Schmomcast. <laughs> so now... I was working a deal and it was a freaking huge deal, right? I was so dead set on selling more to this guy that he actually just stopped me in mid-sentence and said, stop, where do you need me to sign? And finally, my, my sales coach uh, was like kicking me under the table, like, shut up, shut up and let him sign. So I, was a, I was like, oh my God, I got to pay more attention. <laughs> I had that commission left. There you go. Let's ask sort of a more whimsical question here, just because uh, you've been working in car sales for so long. What's the uh, weirdest request anybody ever asked for their car? All right. Well, I'm not married now, so I can probably say it. (laughs) God, and if she listens to this too, she's I'm going to I'll get a message. (laughs) All right. So somebody came in and she was a an acquaintance of mine. I wouldn't say a friend at that point. Um, we, we, so we knew each other from like one interaction. I hooked her up with a car. Uh, it was a great car. It was a great deal. We both were happy with what we got. And she texted me and she said, hey, before I come pick the car up, is there any way you can spray some of your cologne in it? And I was like, yeah, of course. I'm flattered. Right. And then, of course, down the line, I'm like, oh, that probably could have led to something. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget it. And then she, she got the car and she drove off. She texted and she's like, oh, my God, this is the most amazing smell in the world. Not weird at all. No. 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 Hey, I get it. I'm a big deal. Um, in car sales, this is actually something that's always fascinated me. Is there a certain color that seems to be the most popular? I, I've heard that there is, but I didn't and still don't. I haven't paid attention to if there really was a pattern in, in at least the sales that I did. 
And, and I mean, they were always coming out with new colors. I, I had a guy that ordered a brand new Honda Pilot, fully loaded. I was making a, I was making like two grand on that one car alone. And it was taking months for pilots to come in because they were. It was, they just did the redesign, and everybody wanted them. And this guy was so awesome. Him and his wife were just the nicest people. And he wanted this forest green color. If I remember correctly, that's what it was called. And he was the only one that ordered it at the dealership. Nobody else wanted the color, but he did. And it got there, and I was so excited because this was like four months. So I, ha- I was sitting on this $2,000 commission for four months. I'm like, come on, get this car. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it comes in, and it's sitting there. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, this is the ugliest car color I've ever seen. <laughs> right. And I knew my customer. I knew he, he'd hate it. And I said, this is a Saturday afternoon. And I said, I got to, I got to call this guy. I got to do the right thing. Right. So I call him. And I said, Hey, I got to let you know the car's here. It's in your, your forest green. I got to be honest. Look, I said, I know you want this car and good Lord, do I want this commission? I think you need to get in here and take a look before you decide to take this car. And he says, all right. He says, well, I can't get in today. And I said, all right, well, we're closed tomorrow. I said, but you can come on the lot and see it. I'll tell you where it's parked. And he did. And he called me on my cell phone Sunday evening. He's like, yeah, I I, I do not want that. And he ended up taking another one. But it was just like, it's, it's again, it's one of those things. Like, take care of your people. Prospects exactly. are more than, you know, client over commission. And think about that, too. He could have shown up seen the color, and you could have lost everything. Oh, I would have been... Yeah. But instead, you did what you said. You you used the Slaymaker method. You did the right thing. And lo and behold, you still sold him a car. I, I used the Slaymaker method before it was even a thing. <laughs> did anybody buy the forest green car after all? Or did it sit there for somebody, ages? Somebody had to have. Either that or we traded it for another car at another dealership. <laughs> Let another dealer figure <laughs> it out. It was, oh man, such an ugly color. What are the more common requests you get for people when they're buying a car? What do you feel like like is the most common feature that people always ask about? Um, back then, uh, the Apple CarPlay was just coming out. Okay, so that was a uh, that was a lot. A lot of people were asking for that. It, it would depend on the season. A lot of people would demand four wheel drive and stuff because Lancaster sucks. <laughs> it could you could have just said Pennsylvania in general. You probably still would. Yeah, yeah. Right? I've I was trying to be kind. I've driven in the snow in many parts of this state, and it's all oh. it's all exactly the same. It's horrible. My my uh, my dad's a truck driver. Um, he's been a truck driver his entire life. He's getting ready to retire. We hope. Grandfather's a truck driver. So from the ages of about twelve on, between twelve and when I we, my sister and I got our licenses, if it was raining or it was snowing, my dad had us behind the wheel. Like it did not matter. We'd go to parking lots. We'd go down the road. He was like, you're, you're driving in this because when you turn 16, I do not want to have to worry about how you drive in inclement weather. Yeah. So every single time my sister and I from 12 to 16 rear wheel drive cars in the snow did not matter. But that's the best way to learn. Uh, Yeah, exactly. You're in a safe situation. You're in a parking lot. Just figure out how the car feels in the snow and, and yep. go for it. Every, every time it snows, my, my ex-wife did the same thing. My girlfriend does the same thing. If we go anywhere when it snows, they're, they're petrified, mm-hmm. terrified. Are you okay? I'm like, I could do this with one eye open. Yeah. Like, I am completely fine. Like I got a, I have a Corolla now. I do kind of miss my Jeep in the snow sometimes, but oh. I can handle my Corolla in the snow. I'm worried about the other drivers on the road. That's always my concern. 
Yeah. I know I'll be fine, but I don't know that you're going to be fine. People are crazy. Oh, absolutely. Of all the, of all the things that you sold, what was your biggest commission ever? That's a good question. I mean, are we, so are we talking single, single deal or are we talking like overall commission check? Eh, we could do overall. Why not? I, I don't know. It's, it's hard. It's, it's definitely five figures. Okay. That's still a really good commission. I, I can't, I can't pinpoint it. And it's kind of hard because as a business owner, right? It's like most of the money that I would make, would go back into the business. Right. So yeah, that's, that's a tough one. I, I'd say the most probably about 15 grand. If it, if it was like before I started my business in one, okay. one single check. That's still a great commission though, to make just for yeah. yourself. Absolutely. Oh yeah. Do you have a, other than the, uh, the old lady story, which is a great story too. Do you have a favorite commission that you've ever made? Just one that really was a po- really positive. Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I, and, oh, Chris, I hope you're listening. You're out there listening to this. All right. So at that same dealership, and it's funny because like my, the, my, the bulk of my sales stories come from either the dealership or Schmomcast. There, there was this big push not long before I left the dealership to sell these accessories called rim blades. And what rim blades were is they were this real thin little piece of like PVC tubing, right? Maybe silicone, I don't even know. And what it is, is it, like I said, it was about like that, that thick, so teeny. Uh, and it would wrap around the rim of the car. It, they'd come in different colors, like bright green and bright blue and all this other stuff. And Chris was like the biggest proponent of this accessory. And he was just dead set. Everybody push the rim blades. Everybody's got to have rim blades, right? It's ridiculous. And and we're all looking. And he said, I'll tell you what, we have a car in the showroom right now with rim blades on it. I'll give like two grand on top of all your other commissions for whoever sells that car. Right. And we're all looking at it. And everyone, even his little brother, who was a salesperson at the time, who now is is coming up into the senior leadership of the dealership, he looks at me and he's like, nobody's selling this thing. Who the hell wants to run around with that on their rims? He said, (laughs) nobody's going to buy it. I don't think anybody bought any rim blades ever at that dealership. Pointless accessory, like 500 bucks to just put something around your rim. Horrible. So the car that it was on was an electric blue two-door Honda Accord blew all over the place. This car was untouchable before the rim blades. Now it was definitely untouchable. So I was sitting there and a, a family walks in and it's literally a, a husband, a wife and their, their kid. And I'm talking to it. And I'm like, all right, they're going to want either an Accord or maybe a CRV, right? Perfect family vehicles, very safe. And I'm watching and I've got the Accord behind me. I'm watching and as I'm talking, the wife's talking, I see the husband eyeing up that accord, right? And I'm like, I got a shot. <laughs> and he, I, I said, well, hold on a minute. And I get up and I go back into my sales manager's office and there's like the whole team. And I said, guys, I got him looking at the accord. And they're like, no, it's unsellable. You can't, you can't do it. Nobody's going to buy that thing, especially not with the rim blades. I said, I think I can do it. So I walk out. Sure enough, he's walking around the accord. And I'm like, oh man, <laughs> if I can do this, right? <laughs> so sure enough, I got him. Two door coupe, rear wheel drive, ugly ass rim blades on the car, full price, five hundred for the rim blade, rim blades. 
And he says, he's, man, I really like this car. I said, yeah. I said, I'll tell you what, I promise you, you're going to be the only person in Lancaster County with that on the rims. <laughs> right? Right? And I said it just loud enough for the back office to hear it. And I hear just nothing but laughter. <laughs> right? So they signed the deal sheet. Couldn't believe it. Could not believe it. I walked back and they're all cheering and applauding. Chris reached out. He's like, oh, my God, you sold it. I was like, you better believe I sold it. That was that was hands down my favorite one. Great commission on it. Too. Challenge accepted. I love it. Well, I'll never forget it. Yeah, I You're can't. The only person in Lancaster with these on it. I'm gonna have to look and ever see if I ever see that car driving around Lancaster County. Oh my god, I couldn't believe he bought it, especially with having like an infant. Like you're gonna, you're buying a coupe. What are you doing? Yeah, but you know what? That's got to be a great accomplishment, though. You, <sighs> you sold the unsellable car. Oh man, it was like I couldn't. I man, I, I you couldn't even have paid me to take that car. But I I love how every salesperson has that story. There's always that challenge, right? There's always the one thing that they go, you're never going to be able to sell this. And I feel oh, like yeah. someone like you especially would take that as a challenge. I, when I was working for Comcast, um, oh, sorry, Schmomcast. <laughs> Not that they'd do anything anyway. I'll, I'll air out some grievances. I, I got hired there and I went into my interview and it's this guy and he's like, look at all these people on my wall. These are all my team members. They've made 200,000 a year and you're going to have the Lancaster territory. It's going to be amazing. I get there. There was no manager for six months. It was just me and two other guys. We had no direction, no guidance. We didn't know who our territories were, nothing. We found out real quick that there was already a 98% saturation rate in Lancaster County with businesses that already had Comcast. And I was in the B2B space. So we were fighting an incredibly steep uphill battle. We had to we had to carve out niches. It was so hard to find people that didn't have us. And when they didn't have us 80 to 90% of that time, it was because we were locked out of that area and we wouldn't get in. Townships wouldn't allow us to come in. Construction costs were in the nearly half a million dollars just to get it to one customer. Just a million things. It was a hard job. Hard. Uh, but I found a niche in the Amish community because nobody would want to deal with them. They'd get frustrated because they're like, oh, they don't have electricity, so they don't need internet. Well, I started attacking these Amish people because they did need internet. They knew that they were losing money by not having credit card processing abilities in their shops. Well, that was like shooting fish in a barrel. My, one of my favorite Comcast stories that people love, uh, there's an old I guess you could say like a flea market or, or something, uh, Burdenhand flea market or whatever it is right there on 340. I walk in and it's just all these different stalls of different vendors, right? Different stores. Mm -hmm. And I go up and I, I'm looking around and, the, and the, the way I could tell if somebody had us or not in there is if I would see one of our, our modems. And I found this one stall that didn't have a modem with us. I was talking to her. She's this old Amish lady. And I, I explained to her, I took a look at her bill. She had Verizon. I said, I can save you $30 a month. You don't need internet. You just need phone. I can do it in and out. We're done. She's like, okay, good. I said, now look, I have to ask you, do you make long distance calls? And she says, no. And I said, okay. I said, long distance is anything outside of your zip code, not area code. Zip code is long distance. I said, you do not call outside of your zip code, correct? And she said, no, I never make a call outside of my zip code. And I said, okay. I said, if you do, your bill's going to be high. I said, you don't have unlimited long distance like most of them. You're just getting a standard line. It will be high. Her bill would have been $25 a month. So she gets installed and 
about three weeks later, she gets her first bill. This is right around a time when my brother died. So I was off for a little bit. And I turned my phone back on to a barrage of messages from this lady calling me every name in the book. Sweet little Amish lady. Somebody still has the voicemail. I got to find, I think I know who still has it. <laughs> Kyle, this is blah, blah, blah. Just so you know, I got my bill and you are a loser. You are a disgusting loser. My bill is $300. And I was like, oh my God, how is this woman's bill $300? Right? So she left me like five messages berating me, calling me every name in the book. And I, I like run over there. I was like, let me see your bill. She like throws her bill at me. She made nothing but calls to California. <laughs> Some of them for over an hour. And I said, ma'am, you told me you didn't make long distance calls. You told me that you did not call outside of your zip code. You're calling the other coast. Well, I don't, I don't think that should matter. I'm not paying it. I said, whatever. I call, take it up with them. I'm leaving. Never forget it. 75 years old, just screaming. <laughs> you are a loser. I'm telling everyone I know, don't do business with Kyle because he is a loser. I don't care. I call you names. <sighs> I just love that you said out of the zip code. I'm thinking maybe she just called Bucks County or something. No, no she called the she West Coast. California. <laughs> she, she sold like wooden toys. That was what her stand was. Racking up six hours worth of long distance calls in a week. Well, good luck to the next salesperson that got her. Oh, that's the best part. So I, I sent, uh, when we have upset customers, I sent um, that somebody from that team over and I was like, look, she wants to cancel. You got to go fix this. This is what you're up against. And she came back like two hours later. She was like, that little old Amish lady hates you. <laughs> She's like, I was like, what happened? And she goes, she screamed about you for 45 minutes. And I was like, I asked her. Ah, gotta love it. That's the name of the game, though, folks. It is. Guys, we are talking to Kyle, the real deal slaymaker here on the Not So Humble broadcast. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to get a little hot and heavy here as Kyle goes into his addiction recovery and motivational speeches. Don't go anywhere. Lots more coming up. Professional wrestling is a phenomenon that can be found all over the world. Some companies claim to be number one. Some companies claim to make an impact. Some companies claim to be elite. But in this giant world of professional wrestling, there is only one alpha. The AWO, the Alpha Wrestling Organization. Now you can read all about the AWO by visiting Amazon and picking up a copy of AWO Big Time Players Episode 1, The Beginning of Change. You can also find AWO Big Time Players Episode 2 and AWO Big Time Players Episode 3. Be on the lookout for future AWO titles. The world needs change. And that change is the AWO. The Alpha Wrestling Organization. Hey, what's going on? This is Anthony from the ABJ Podcast. I'm a weekly podcast that airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. exclusively on YouTube. Or you can find me on all major podcast platforms from Spotify to Apple Music to Google to, you know, pretty much everywhere. But I talk to anyone with a story. You're chasing a dream? You have a story to tell? I mean, I want to hear it. Uh, I've talked to anyone from the, the, from the art of professional wrestling to film 
to acting, to content creating, music, and much more. If you have a passion and you have a dream, I want people to hear about your story. So come on and join the ABJ podcast. Send me a message and we'll, we'll get an episode started right away. And I hope to see you in our chat over there on the YouTube side. Make sure you hit like and subscribe. We are back on the Not So Humble broadcast. I am chatting with Kyle Slaymaker, and this part of the interview is going to get a little heavy, folks, so little listener discretion advised, uh, nothing funny about addiction recovery, and of course, if you need help, we're more than happy to point you in the direction you need to go in here. So one of the things that you've done, Kyle, is you've given some motivational speeches to kind of help others who've dealt with what you've dealt with and kind of help pull them back in and everything. So I'm going to kind of just turn this over to you, and you can just kind of tell your story how, however you need to tell it. Yeah, so um, I guess I want to preface this by saying I, it, it took me a long time to realize or maybe accept that I had uh, an alcohol problem. So this all started – I started drinking when I was about 15, 16 years old. The event that really triggered it was I was – sexually assaulted and raped um, by a manager that I worked with at McDonald's. Um, I came forward. I ended up working with the police. The FBI took over because they were chasing him for years and could never get proof. Um, I wore a wire, took him down, but it, it messed me up pretty, pretty bad. And I, I started drinking and that's kind of really when it started because when I would be at these parties and I would be the drunkest kid in the room, Everybody would think I was hilarious and I was popular and you know how high school is. And then I, I transitioned into the Navy and things really kicked up then, even though I, I, I didn't really see that they kicked up. I, I found myself you know, out of Lancaster County, 18, 19 years old, living in San Diego. I was, I was an adult, right? I, I, I was responsible for myself and I was not responsible that's probably the, the best way to describe it. Now, I've got some of the funniest stories of when I was drunk in the Navy and on deployment. You know, looking back, it, it got really, really bad. I used to be proud that on any given afternoon, I would walk into my favorite bar in San Diego for lunch and there would be a Red Bull and vodka waiting for me because the bartenders knew me that well. And back then I was like, oh, this is great. This is easier service for me. Not thinking like the bartenders on a day shift already have your drink ready for you before you even get there, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I've, I've been found at trolley stops, passed out at two in the morning. This is all during the Navy times. I went on deployment and just got plastered in every single country I was in. And to be fair, you know, at that time, I was having the time of my life. I, I really was. I was discovering how to talk to women. I was no longer the nerd in high school that just wore the Hawaiian shirts. I was the war veteran who is serving his country and I was just getting plaster all the time and doing the Navy thing, the sailor thing. Uh, so I came back home and there, I, I felt out of place, right? And any veteran that leaves the service knows this feeling. I just didn't feel like I was adjusting to civilian life. And I was only 22 years old. So I, I reached out to a, an ex-girlfriend. She was the girl that I was dating in California, in San Diego. We were living together and I left her so I could come home and be with my daughter. It was four at the time. And I reached out to her after maybe a month of being home. And I said, hey, I don't think there's anything here for me. I said, I, I just don't feel right being here. I said, I think I want to move back. And she said, you, you know I'll take you back with open arms. You can just move right back in here. But I don't think it's a good idea. And she was finishing up her law degree. 
She's now a very good attorney. And I said, well, why not? And she said, well, I don't think you realize how much you were drinking. And I said, I said yeah, I would drink every now and then. She's like, no. She said, you were drinking every night. I was like, yeah, I'd have like a Jack and Coke after work every night after I got off the ship. And she said, no, you were drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels a night, every night. And I said, oh, wow, that's a lot. Right. So that kind of curbed my drinking a little bit, um, but it never really stopped. I found myself in some, some toxic relationships. The drinking continued. I never hurt anybody. I never got into an accident or anything like that. So I thought everything was fine. Uh, fast forward to 2019, I believe it was 2019, 2019 or 2020 um, is when my little brother passed away. And he, he passed away because somebody laced his, his weed pen. Uh, he had a seizure, then went into a coma and, and passed away when we took him off life support. He was 22. Uh, that, that wrecked me. Um, everything just went into full gear, right? I remember the Christmas after he died, my now ex-wife and I went over to my dad's house Christmas Eve and I got hammered. And I don't remember leaving the house, but I woke up Christmas morning and my face was killing me. It hurt so bad. And my, my wife went over and just said, you need to go look in the mirror. And I look in the mirror and my face is just covered in blood, just scratches, scrapes, cuts. Just, it, I looked horrible. And I said, what happened? And she said, we got you home and you tried to get out of the car and you fell on your face and smashed it on the pavement. So that, at that point, she was pregnant with our daughter. Uh, my son was just, a, you know, right around one. And I was like, I got I to gotta fix this. Still didn't say I was an alcoholic. Still didn't say I had a problem. I just knew I needed to, to cut drinking back, right? Um, so I decided to do 75 hard that, that following year on January 1st. And I completed it. 75 days of sobriety. I stopped doing the program. I still made it even longer. I made it to seven months uh, of sobriety. Didn't pick up a drink. I was proud of myself. Things were starting to turn around. But at that point, I was so affected by my little brother's passing, and so was my wife, that we became very toxic and we were so unhappy and so miserable. We took a vacation down to the Outer Banks and she was like, hey, look, you've done really good with drinking. I think it's probably okay if you if you have a drink. And I was like, yeah, I think I do, I do too. That's all it took, right? A hundred is too many or a hundred is never enough and one is too many. So I started drinking again. Same thing. I started, I started day drinking. She'd, I'd wait till everybody was asleep in the house. I'd run up to the gas station and I'd get everything I needed to just get hammered that night. Every single night. Um, so years later, finally, the marriage comes to an end long after it should have. And it was finally like, okay, I, I can't stay sober. I just, I can't. Um, I never had to go through detox or anything, but uh, I went on a bender and things got really, really, really bad. And my girlfriend now, she, she could see that I was hurting. She could see that I was screaming out for help, right? Because the divorce at that point had gotten so ugly and stuff was being done, stuff was being said, and it was just crushing. I wasn't able to see my kids. We had to go through lawyers for that. And there's so much out there that you can find. It, it just, it wrecked me. Um, and so my girlfriend saw that I was hurting uh, and she said, I'm calling Jesus. And I said, okay, call him. And, you know, at, at that point, Jesus and I knew each other from him doing my podcast for those that don't know, Jesus is now living in Lancaster. He wrestled as Ricardo Rodriguez in the WWE. And this was like 1130 at night. And Jesus came over to my house. And I was sitting on the couch, crying, drunk. And that night, Jesus saved my life. 
he's he did not leave that house until he was sure I had some sort of placement in, in blueprints. Somebody from blueprints came over. They ended up her and Jesus left my house at around 2 a.m. Uh, and ever since then, I've been completely sober. And it's been it's been a hard a hard ride, right? Like it's one of those things that I like the I, I posted about it. I stopped at Sheets to to go to the bathroom. I had to pee, and I pull in. I get out of my car, and the next thing I know, something cold touches my fingertips, and it it like snaps me into focus. And I realize that I'm standing in the beer cooler holding my favorite drink that I would get from the gas station, and I I had no intention or desire to to get something to drink. It was just like I had done it so much that it was muscle memory to walk in, go into the cooler and grab this drink. And, and that's when I really realized and accepted, you're always going to be an alcoholic. The second I think I've got it beat or I've got it handled is the second I relapse again. And, you know, I, it, it's funny that how many pivotal moments revolve around wrestling. I mean, not even just Jesus. One of my worst nights was during Royal Rumble weekend when they were in Philly. I, I did a wrestling overload. We were sixth row for the Rumble, front row for NXT TakeOver Philly, right behind the announce table. Uh, we got our tickets from Kevin Dunn through a mutual friend. Uh, Shikara, House of Hardcore, Tommy Dreamer's promotion when he had it down at the ECW Arena, and Icons of Wrestling. At Icons, I got to meet Sting, Scott Hall, Flair, every, all, my, all my heroes, right? So House of Hardcore was, was Friday night. And we've been to a, a bunch of House of Hardcore shows. I went down with my boss. And, and Tommy Dreamer put on an amazing promotion. Every single night was fantastic. And the cool thing is, is Tommy, while everybody was doing the meet and greets before the show, Tommy would walk around the, the ECW arena and talk to fans, take pictures for free, sign autographs for free. It's just awesome. And I was so high and drunk. I could, I could barely walk. And my boss is pretty stoned too. And the only thing I remember from that night is Tommy Dreamer looking at me going, man, you're really fucked up. Are you okay? And, I, and back then, again, I, I just thought I was partying and having a good time. And I, I, looking back, I'm like, man, this guy that I look up to, that I really respect, I look like an idiot in front of him. But yeah, you know, sobriety, if, I'd be, if I would still be drinking with everything that I've got going on, I'd, I'd be dead. I, I'd be, I would have committed suicide. So, you know, it's, it's, it's hard. It's, it's, it's a very... Somebody said that recovery doesn't, the hard stuff doesn't start until you're sober. And, I, and that is so flipping true. How are you using your experience here to help others now? So I do what's called Recover Out Loud. And I, I learned that through somebody who was a guest on my podcast, Slaying the Sale. Uh, it was Brian Cuban. And yes, Brian is Mark Cuban's brother. Brian is known for his addiction recovery. And on my podcast, he explains that. The only reason he went to law school is because he didn't want to leave college because he was partying and he was high on Coke and many other things throughout law school. And now what Brian does is he, you know, he's very big on social media. He recovers out loud. He talks about his struggle, the things he did that he's ashamed of everything. Um, and he goes around to different, you know, law conventions and colleges and law schools because there is a huge, huge problem with addiction in the legal field. Very huge. Uh, it's it's actually horrific. I've but heard that, yeah. He talked about recovering out loud. And it was such a poignant thing because it, it takes a lot of balls to openly tell people about your addiction and your recovery and the messed up things that you did. But I do it because, you know, I I reached out to Jesus that night because he's open about his recovery. 
because I felt safe reaching out to Jesus. At that point, we were more acquaintances. And once I got sober, I began to recover out loud. And I've had people message me like, you're going through a divorce. You're going through a custody battle. You know who you're up against. You know, there, there's nothing they won't do. Why are you putting this stuff out there? And the answer's simple. I'm alive today because somebody was open about their sobriety and recovery. And if what I do helps just one person, it's worth it. I have no problem admitting it to anything that I have done, anything that I have been through, if it helps just one person. And it already has. I get messages at least weekly of people saying, how, how do I find classes? What do I do? I, I've, I, when I'm hurting or when I'm craving, I read your posts. And that's why I do it. That's how I give back. Because that's the only way I can give back right now. Absolutely. So if anybody out there right now listening to this episode, if they are looking for some help, where would you like to direct them? Uh, so if, if you're in Lancaster, and I mean, honestly, probably anywhere else, I just Google, Googled Alcoholics Anonymous meetings near me. And there's usually a meeting locator. You can find meetings. There's meetings seven days a week, multiple times a day. If you know you think this is a situation where you need like an actual intensive rehab program or outpatient, reach out to anybody at Blueprints. Uh, the whole staff is fantastic. Uh, and if you don't want to do any of that, just reach out to me. Just just reach out to me because you don't have to go through it alone. And I've heard horror stories that I can almost guarantee are much worse than whatever you're going to tell me. Right. Absolutely. How are you feeling these days? Oh, you picked an interesting day to ask that. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of weird. Um, I mean, all in all, good. You know, there's, there's stuff in my personal life surrounding the divorce that just never seems to go away. I have been focused since last year on just rebuilding my life moving forward. Um, and other people are, are not interested in, the, in that. They're not interested in me doing that. And this is not just one specific person. So I don't want to get accused of singling anybody out. And, and you know, it, it seems like daily I, I hear from somebody that says, oh, look what this person's saying. Look what that person is saying. They're trying to do this. They're trying to do that. But the fact that I've made it through without drinking, I think, is, uh, is the reason I'm able to get by every day. I, I'm able to say I do have the strength to make it through anything. And you also have to have a good uh, support system around you, too. Oh, good Lord, do you ever. I don't care if you're an addict or not. You need a good support system. Absolutely. And that's just it. I mean, going back to what we talked about earlier in sales, I mean, how much more successful are you as a salesman when you've got a good team working oh, together? That's that's one of the most important things. Entrepreneurs are going to sit there and be like, well, I, I can't afford a team. I'm not talking about you. I'm, I'm talking about people that have sales teams. If you don't have a good team, oh, you, you're going you're gonna to be hurting. And make sure that when you see somebody on the team that's dragging them down or is toxic, fire them immediately. And uh, with your support system here, uh, that led you, of course, to Three Legacies Wrestling, where I do the uh, commentary. And how has, uh, how has wrestling been a positive influence on you? Oh, man. So my, my earliest memory of wrestling was my grandfather on my mom's side. I remember Earthquake and The Undertaker being in the ring. And Paul Barrett was there. And my aunt said something to my grandfather that pissed him off about how it's fake. And, and I didn't really watch it again until the Monday Night Wars. And I was a Sting guy. I loved Sting. Still my all-time favorite. I was so happy to meet him when the Rumble was in Philly. You know, then came that period where wrestling kind of became taboo for, for gr grown men. But 
it was always kind of there and it, it became such a staple and yeah, it was an escape. You know, when shit was going bad, I could just turn on wrestling. Right. Right. Um, but then I, I started getting more involved in it. Right. So I, I started really getting involved in it when again, back to selling cars, uh, there was a buddy at the dealership across the next door dealership it was all a big family of dealerships. And his name was Jack still one of my closest friends today. And I'm looking at his profile pictures. And back then I was a huge ring of honor fan, right? Cause we could just go down to Philly. That was when ring of honor was in its heyday. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. And I'm going through his profile pictures and I'm like, that looks like Adam Cole. And, and I text him. I said, that guy that you, that's in your profile picture. I said, is that Adam Cole? And he goes, Oh, you're a wrestling fan. And I said, yeah, yeah, actually I'm a big wrestling fan. And my, my ex-wife hated it. She used to try to shame me for it. <laughs> Everywhere we were, she would make fun of me in front of her friends, everything. It just drove me nuts. Uh, And I said, yeah. And he goes, well, he's my best friend. He's my roommate. I live with him. And I was like, oh, cool. And the next weekend, he's like, why don't you come over? We're having a 90s party. And and I I was like, of course, I'm not going to pass this up. So I go over there, go down to the basement, and there's Adam just gone, (laughs) right? Having the time of his life. And he he sees me, and he's like, oh, you want to go upstairs and talk wrestling? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. So we went upstairs and him and I sat for like an hour while this whole party was going on and we just talked wrestling. And it was an incredible moment for me. And then we started hanging out more. He ended up coming to the cigar lounge with me. We, we had so much fun. Now, obviously, a lot has changed since he got the call to NXT and now he's at AEW and Britt is literally the most important person in his life. Yes. <laughs> um, but he opened my eyes to something that, and I just kind of accepted like I'm a wrestling fan. I'm going to be a wrestling fan. And the, from there, I got introduced to Tim Donst, uh, all the CZW guys. I reached out to, to Ricardo when I found out he was in Lancaster. I made friends with all the people at 3LW, like like Meg and you know Chris running Blueprints. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's, it's like a family. And if you're not a Three Legacies fan or you've never been to a Three Legacies show, and, and listen, this is the only promotion that I've ever been to where it's truly like this because I've been to ROH so many times I, I've met, you know, AJ Styles, Moose, Nakamura, Okada, but the three legacies crowd and the locker room and the staff is truly the epitome of a family promotion. 100%. Because like, like take, we'll call her Zoe Cannon. Take Zoe, for example, when Zoe found out I was in recovery, she has been from day one, one of the people that constantly checks in. And when she sees me and my son at a show, she immediately makes a beeline to us. And it's like that with everybody. Same with Bro Keller. Same with Jesus. Same. I mean, everybody. It's such a family promotion. And that's one of my biggest and best support systems. It's the most welcoming locker room I've ever been in. It's the most supportive locker room I've ever been in. There's no drama. There's nobody's backstabbing anybody. Nobody's burying anybody. Like... It almost doesn't feel real because I, you know, I've been doing this since 2005 and I've been in, I, I've worked for entire promotions I completely forget exist. And there's always been some kind of drama or somebody's starting something or somebody doesn't get along or this person can't be near this person or Three Legacies has been around since October of, of uh, 22. Yep. And I haven't seen it once and I've been to, and I've worked every show and I haven't seen it one time. I liken three legacies is the Mick Foley of independent promotions. That's the, that's a great analogy. I love right? that. I absolutely so, love that. Funny, funny Mick Foley story. So I, 
I was maybe 13, right? So it was right in the throes of the Monday Night Wars. And I was at Dutch Wonderland down there on 30. And this guy's like, hey, do you know the WWF wrestler Mankind? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, there he is. <laughs> and Mick, Mick Foley was at Dutch Wonderland with Noel when Noel was just like four or five years old. Yeah. And he, nobody was bugging him. Nobody. And my dad's like, go talk to him. And, it, and listen, pure Mick, sweatpants, flannel. Yep. Did he have a Winnie the Pooh shirt on too? Yeah. (laughs) I I walked up to Mick and he had, and he let, he was like, Oh, have a seat. And I sat on a bench with Mick Foley for 20 minutes while his wife and kids were on a ride, just talking wrestling. And that's the three legacies. When you think of the talent and I've told Jesus this, the talent that he has cultivated in that locker room is astounding. And I'm taking out anybody he brings in as special guests. I I have said it since the first day I saw her, Zoe, is WWE caliber all the way, all she's the amazing. way. And she's her a wonderful person work, too. She is her crowd work when she's in the ring is unparalleled. I've, I've been to WWE shows. I've been to the rumble. Nobody can work and engage a crowd like she can. You've got Tarzan Duran, who the only reason he is not in one of the big three, I think is because of his, his hardcore and his deathmatch stuff. I think that's the only reason because he has a ridiculous skill set. Yes. I does. mean, his jungle drive or whatever he calls it is just phenomenal. That's Bro, my, my favorite move to call is jungle juice, by the way, because, he's, because, he, because he screams it before he before he does it. So I know he's going for it. His who else? I mean, everybody on there. But and, and Clayton, I mean, the kid is just. A, a freak of nature <laughs> he is yeah I, six, I mean six foot nine and jacked just he reminds me of, of damian priest if, if he would balk up a little bit which god forbid if he does something he'll, he'll <laughs> he I, I remember being an roh show and it was damian priest back when he was whatever his name was back then and and cheeseburger and if anybody has never seen a cheeseburger match just watch it the guy's hilarious <laughs> right he's my size has no business being in the ring with anybody He's like the Spike Dudley, except skinnier and taller. He's so entertaining. This it was at the ECW arena, and there was a spot where uh, Damian Priest would whip Cheeseburger off the ropes and and just you know press him up, and he'd take a high bump. I swear to God, Cheeseburger hit the rafters. I have never seen somebody get launched that high, <laughs> and he hit the mat, and just the whole ECW arena went silent. That's how high he went. <laughs> And it was just like, oh my gosh. But yeah, but anyway, Three Legacies Locker Room is just, Jesus and Chris have put on such an amazing promotion. And it is, everybody should see it, wrestling fan or not. They, everybody they have made me feel welcome and like family since day one. And I'm I'm very proud of the work I do for them. I'm trying very hard to help promote them. Uh, you know, I, I try to work on the street team as often as I can. I'm always passing out flyers. And I believe very strongly in this company and I've worked for other promotions. Like, don't get me wrong. I've worked for other promotions that I'm very passionate about too. Uh, one who might be having a little pop up here at WrestleMania weekend. I'm looking forward to that, but uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to mania weekend one, because we know the main event of night two that we're going to finally see. And we get to see what's going to happen night one. But after the rumble weekend, I am absolutely terrified of how exhausted I am going to be (laughs) after rumble weekend. I took like six months away from wrestling because I I was just so overloaded. Yeah. Mania is going to be twice as big. Oh, for sure. For sure. 
but uh, I'm, I'm really excited about that. And just like I said, it's, uh, it is just such a great family driven atmosphere that he's cultivated. And that's a lot of the strength of it too. And I, I won't get too inside baseball here just because, but I know some of the people who you're not going to see again in 3LW. And there's a reason for some of that because he doesn't want that atmosphere, that negative attitude in the locker room. So he, there's some people you might never see in a 3LW ring again. And, and it's that, that goes lo- to show like a lot of respect there. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of respect. And, you know, being, being friends and, and like genuine friends with some people that have been in many locker rooms, you know, you, you hear things, right. And you, and then you see things firsthand, the more time you spend in the business. And it's, it, it kind of like goes back to what we were talking about with, with having a sales team. When there's a cancer in the locker room, you cut it out. Exactly. Because ultimately it's going to hurt. And I don't want to disparage anyone uh, we'll say their name rhymes with JF junk, <laughs> right? <laughs> from, from a talent perspective, that person is one of the best in history. I will, I will always give credit to the in-ring work and mic work no matter what. But there's a reason somebody jumps around that quickly <laughs> and develops a reputation. Well, And all the respect in the world to him. And that's like I'll, – I'll end with this unless you keep talking wrestling – I, I always get into, when I'm bored, arguments and debates over Benoit and Dynamite Kid. Right? Mm-hmm. I, I, for those out there, I goes to show how long I've been watching wrestling. They're both touchy subjects for different reasons. Like, exactly. Exactly. But you know what? I had Martin Stone on my podcast. It was Danny Birch and WWE. And we talked about it both on the air and off the air. And, and him and I think the exact same thing. You have to separate the personal from the professional. You have to. When it comes down to pro- professional, Chris Benoit was one of, if not the best, in-ring worker that has ever been, period. Outside of the ring, garbage. You, I do not condone what he did. I'm not going to sit here and buy into the conspiracy theories that apparently everybody I, – I, I'll never understand it. Yeah, I've, I've heard but too many of them at this point. If somebody is a genuinely good in-ring worker, I don't care what they did outside – it should be respected. I mean, talent is talent. And that's kind of like with William Regal. I have been a hardcore fan of William Regal. I think he is the most underappreciated man in wrestling history. Uh, absolutely. I'll close with this, and I'll just, to, to your point, some of these guys eventually can, in fact, redeem themselves. Yes. Shawn Michaels, there you go. One of the Jake. greatest in-ring performances of all time. Jake the Snake Roberts, exactly. These guys, Scott Hall, Razor Ramon. And they've, they redeem themselves, and now they're revered in this day and age. Eddie Guerrero. Eddie uh, Guerrero went through a very dark period. Eddie. I mean, Vader. Vader was one of those guys Big that – Vader, yeah. He never did. He never wanted to. When he was on the convention circuit, he was a jerk to all his fans. I had an experience with him, and I paid for an autograph with him, and I was not happy about it. He looked like he wanted to be anywhere else but there. you know. And then there's – I'll never forget this, the age-old story of Harley Race was the only one to ever – that Andre the Giant and Vader were scared of. <laughs> because, because they said Harley Race had no problem coming to blows with either of them. I and believe one, it. 100% believe it. But uh, yeah. I love that business. And that right there, folks, is the power of professional wrestling. It brings a lot of people together, as you just saw. We're going to take our final break here. When we come back, I'm going to turn things over to you, the listeners. And we're going to ask Kyle Slaymaker your burning questions. Don't go anywhere. Not So Humble Broadcast will be right back. 
Do you feel like your voice doesn't matter? Does it feel like our leaders aren't listening? Participating in politics shouldn't be this difficult. Future is Now Coalition is here to fundamentally change politics and restore democracy, making it more transparent, accessible, and inclusive. To learn more about our mission and get involved with the movement, find us at futureisorg on Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, and X, or visit our website, futureis.org. That's futureis.org. Hey everybody, this is Dan Peck, letting you know that you can join myself, Chris, and other members of the CKCC community on Twitch each and every week. From video game playthroughs, interactive quizzes and trivia, or just hanging out, there's always something happening on Twitch. So go to twitch.tv slash online to join the fun, and make sure you subscribe so you never miss out. The Not So Humble Bradcast back on the air. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcast. We are on iTunes. We are on Apple. We are on Spotify. We are on iHeartRadio. Our main hub is Podbean, soon to be YouTube. Just another way to listen to these episodes. Talking to Kyle Slaymaker here. He is the real deal. We've gotten real already. And now it's time to get real serious with your questions. Kyle, are you ready for the questions from the listeners? Ooh, let's do it. All right. Our first question here comes from last week's podcast guest, Rich Lacasio, coming out of Racine, Wisconsin. Uh, he asks a couple of questions here, so I'll kind of break it down a little bit. How important do you believe planning is when it comes to setting yourself up for success? Incredibly. Um, I mean, I, I, I talk about it on YouTube, podcasts, everywhere. Uh, if, if you're talking about just, you know, success in general – uh, live and die by the calendar. Map out every flipping minute of your day if you have to, and do not deviate. If something's not on the calendar, it does not get done. If you're going to have a cutoff of an hour activity, you cut it off at an hour, and that's it. There you go. It is going to really boost productivity. All right. Uh, second question here. How much would you attribute your success to following a process and grinding versus acting on instinct and going with your gut? Good question. Seeing how I, I'm a sales trainer, strategist, whatever buzzword you want to throw at me, uh, obviously I do have a a process and sales strategy that I follow. I have a sales strategy that I teach to all the others and, and I help tailor their strategies so they have an actual process to follow. But at the end of the day, you still need to be able to have that instinct to read people, notice the buying signals if we're talking about sales and being able to read the room. And sometimes you do have to go with your gut and pivot. And Rich, of course, does have a sales background. He did talk about that on the episode as well. So his last question here is something that I've always kind of wondered myself. What is something about your sales approach that you believe most people don't do enough of on their own sales journey? Uh, yeah, demand creation. Um, I talk about it in my second book called Creating Dynamic Demand. Uh, the way that I, I sell, the way that I teach people how to sell is to really get the customer to realize that the need that they're trying to fix goes much deeper than just the surface level. You know, I need to do this. So it fixes this, you know, everybody buys for that emotional reason. Like I said, at the beginning of this podcast. So what I do is I ask as many questions as I possibly can. And I just help tell, I take the customer deeper and deeper and deeper. Right. So for example, somebody blows a tire there's a million different tire shops along that road, but one of them is a hundred dollars or more expensive than the other ones. And they're all others are the exact same price. They walk into the, the random one that's a hundred dollars cheaper. 
and they're like, oh, you need a tire. Here you go. This is what it's going to be. Right. But that same person walks into that more expensive shop and this is what the rep does. Oh, so you need to fix your tire. Where do you have to go in such a hurry? Well, I have to go to my son's baseball game. Oh, yeah. My son plays baseball, too. Why do you need to get to the game so quick? Well, you know, I just want him to see me at one of his practices so he sees that I still care and then it'll be a better dinner at home with my family and it'll just make everybody happier overall. Well, all right. Well, now all of a sudden that $100 tire becomes a heck of a lot more valuable and it's easier to justify that $100 extra charge. So what I do is I just do that. I see so many people being so transactional where they uncover that surface level need and they go to make the clothes. Excellent. All right. Next question comes from Stalin's ghost. Nice. <laughs> uh, this one's kind of off the beat. I, I encourage listeners to ask questions out of the box. And this is a perfect example. Describe your perfect deli sandwich. Oh, man. Being raised Jewish. This one hits close to home. <laughs> you know what? I, I'm a sucker for either a Cuban or a Reuben. Those, those are it for me. I, I just, anytime they're on the menu, that's what I'm getting. Uh, sticking with food for a minute, our next question comes from our up-and-coming motivational speaker, Emerson A. Cotton, a future guest on the podcast, by the way. There's a plug oh, for a yeah. future episode. What's your favorite restaurant and go-to meal? Oh, that's a very subjective question. Um, it depends on my mood. Um, for, if it's sushi, I love Ginza uh, down here in Lancaster. If... It's wings. I would probably say Joe's Wings and Wieners over there in Leola. Right down the road from where I work. Heck yeah. I love it. Um, yeah, it really, really does depend. I, I've eaten all over the world. Um, I try to do as little chain food, chain restaurants as possible because I think the food in the, in the one-offs is just phenomenal. Absolutely. That's also part of the fun of, of exploring new areas. Yeah. Looking for the local eats and the, the hidden gems, as I like to call them. Exactly. Uh, once again, Mr. Cotton here. Now he's advertising himself as the host of Motivational Moves Podcast, a podcast right here on CKCC Radio, by the way. Heck yeah. What is a book or books that you have read that changed your life? Oh, Green Lights, Matthew McConaughey. Good answer. Uh, and then, of course, Mr. Cotton with his last question, owner of Motivational Vacations. He makes sure he always asks different questions yeah, and get all his different plugs. self-promotion. Absolutely. Well, wait till you hear his interview on this episode. <laughs> uh, what was your favorite spot to go on vacation and why? Oh, that is a good one. Um, so I'm going to answer this, even though they weren't really vacations, but it, it, I was there when I was in the Navy, Australia. It was just incredible. I, I actually found that the United States has the meanest people <laughs> everywhere else. I went every other country. They were so much nicer than people here in the U S. Oh, I believe that I learned that when I did my study abroad program in Europe. Yeah, it's crazy. Seeing that hospitality and especially for me growing up in North Jersey and being surrounded by the New York city metropolitan area. Like, uh, yeah. and now I'm in the South of France and nice, which is like the most laid back city I've ever been to. It was a night and day difference. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. When you went to Australia, did you go during the summer or the winter for them? Oh, gosh, I don't even remember. It was on deployment. It, it was, I mean, it was nice. So probably summer. <laughs> I just always feel like I want to try a vacation like that one time in my life. Go to the other hemisphere and just change seasons. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such a, I mean, I, I love to travel. And, and I got that bug when I was in the Navy. I've been all over, every state in the U.S., 
tons of different countries. Um, I've seen crazy, crazy stuff. It's, it's, there's something rewarding about being in warm weather when you know back home is freezing. <laughs> I know a lot of people who would agree with that sentiment. Uh, this question comes from Jason Shin of J Bunny's Music Hub podcast. Jason Shin, a past guest on this podcast as well. And I, I really like this question. <laughs> I, it cracked me up when I read it. Is Slaymaker your real last name? It's pretty <laughs> metal. Seems like the name of a hero in a video game. <laughs> yeah, so that that is my last name. Um, hence why I definitely played upon it when I created my business. Uh, the only time that this last name was a detriment to me was when I was in boot camp because they singled me out real quick. <laughs> and then from uh, Jeff from Connecticut, longtime listener. It's not a question, but he wants to say congratulations on taking your addiction one day at a time and succeeding in your recovery. And right there is exactly why I recover out loud. Thank you, Jeff. Absolutely. So I'm going to hit you with a couple of quick lightning round questions here. Let's and do then it. We'll, uh, then we'll do some plugs at the end here. So a uh, couple of quick lightning round wrestling questions. You mentioned Sting is your favorite wrestler of all time. Yep. Favorite tag team of all time. Whoa, I don't even know if I could answer that in a lightning way. Um, <laughs> it's it's a toss-up. Brothers of Destruction, Legion of Doom, or Steiners. Three great tag teams. Absolutely. Favorite match of all time? Oh, man. Li live or ever? How about both? Okay. Um, ever is probably... Steamboat Savage, WrestleMania 3. Okay. Great Clinic. answer. Clinic. Um, live, that's that's going to be a toss-up, so I'll name them. Um, I was at the Great American Bash in Baltimore in 98 when Benoit and Booker T had their final of their best of seven for the oh, TV best title. best of seven was so good. Winner went on to face Fit Finley. That match, Booker T and Benoit is still widely regarded as one of the best matches in, in the history of wrestling, and it deserves it. Absolutely. Um, I was also there for Ring of Honor when it was the Young Bucks and AJ Styles against Evan Bourne, Jay Lethal, and I can't remember who the other was, and it was the most insane finisher I have ever seen. So what happened is Evan Bourne, or Matt Seidel, depending on how you know him as, climbed the top turnbuckle, went to do a shooting star press. AJ caught him in full position for the Styles Clash, passed him to Matt Jackson. They did the indie taker on him. No, no, sorry. It was uh, uh, shooting star press, caught like this, super, double super kick. Then the Young Bucks gave him the indie taker, gave him back to AJ Styles, super kick into a Styles Clash. <laughs> It was, it was the most ridiculous, over-the-top thing, and the crowd went nuts. You can find it on YouTube. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> I'll, um, I'll definitely have to look that one up. Other than that, I mean, it's there's there's so many. But those those are the top two for me. Besides Zoe Cannon, favorite female wrestler? Oh, that's such a hard one, too. I feel like it's so so generational. I, I mean, it's it's hard to deny the talent that's out there today. Um, Charlotte, Becky Lynch, you know, those two are just world-class when it comes to actual ring, ring work, but growing up Sable for obvious reasons, <laughs> not, not the ring work. <laughs> well, um, but other than that, I would say Lita. 
The Sable yeah, was think, never known for her ring work. So. Yeah, I, I think Lita was really a pioneer. Um, I think so. Know, she, was, she was a rock star. I'd say Sonny, but we know how that turned out. <laughs> say no more there. Yeah. All right. Uh, favorite movie? Moulin Rouge. Mm, good one. Uh, favorite television show? Sopranos. Yes, I'm doing my rewatch right now. Love it. I just got to season five. Yeah, yeah. I'm on season five right now. Such a great show. Such a classic show. It never gets old. No, absolutely not. Uh, Favorite band or musical artist? Oh, gosh. (sighs) Um, I'm a big fan of Rag and Bone Man. The greats, Ozzy, Billy Joel, Stevie Wonder. But that that list could go a million years. Of course. Favorite sports franchise? Steelers. Steelers Nation. How, how does that feel being here in Lancaster where it's like Steelers and Eagles are kind of mixed? Uh, I mean, Steelers have been such a successful franchise and such a popular franchise. I can find Steelers fans wherever I go. So I, I don't yeah, mind. That's it. true. I mean, I haven't been able to say shit to anybody for the past four years, but <laughs> you know, we're still going strong. Of all the 50 states, which one's been your favorite? California. California. Okay. Uh, which one's been the most disappointing? Atlantic City. <laughs> no, I, I I could agree with that. That place is a dump. Sorry, I know you're, I know you're, I know you're kind of like a Jersey guy, but uh, I'm a North Jersey guy. It's fine. Yeah, that place is <laughs> leaves a lot to be desired. What's a country you haven't been to that's number one on your list? Ireland. Okay, and then of all the countries you have visited, which one was your favorite? Uh, well, I'll tell you what, I, I, I'll take, I'll take uh, Australia off because I already talked about how much I love being there. I, I think Canada was a lot of fun. I, I had a lot of fun when we stopped in Canada. All right. Well, Kyle, go ahead and tell the people out there how they can find you on social media, how they can listen to your podcast and how they can purchase your book. Yes. All right. So uh, I'm the, the best way to get a hold of me, guys, is through social media. My profile is kyle.slaymaker.54 on Facebook. Um, not really active on any other, other channels. Uh, you can also feel free to text me, too. I give my phone number on every podcast, 717-951-6035. If you spam me, I will kill you. Uh, <laughs> I, I've got a lot of numbers blocked. This has bit me in the ass almost like every time I've done it, but whatever. Um, if you want to purchase my books, I have four books out on Amazon. Three of those are bestsellers. Um, really, just put my name into the search bar. And you should you should be able to find it. My podcast is called Slaying the Sale. It is available everywhere you get your podcast from. Um, and listen, don't don't ever hesitate to reach out. I'm, I'm always looking to meet new people and talk to new people. So reach out and communicate. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you. This was a really good, very inspirational talk, I think, too. And I, I hope a lot of people got a lot of positive feelings out of this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, guys, as you know, another guest coming up next week on the Not So Humble broadcast, where we will not so humbly allow you to tell your story. Big thanks to the real deal Kyle Slaymaker. And what can I say? We'll see you guys next week. And until then, remember, if you need help, don't be afraid to reach out. And please learn how to drive in the snow. 